your hands dirty. <clears throat> but this morning, I, wanna, I want to inspire us and help us to, to catch these foxes of sin in our life and deal with them. And we're, we're going to do that by getting into a story and, and just reading about a man who, who didn't do that, right? Cain. This is a man who let the foxes take control of his yard. And, and the outcome is not good. So let's, let's jump right in. Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 5. I'm just going to like work through uh, this story and read a little bit and then talk and share. And then read a little bit and talk and share. We're just going to work through this story together. So Genesis 4 chapter 1, or sorry, Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. We'll stop there. So... When it comes to, to, you know, really understanding a passage of Scripture, something I like to do is just ask questions. Just ask questions to the text. And sometimes, you know, the text will answer the, the question in an obvious way. Uh, sometimes the answers are found elsewhere in Scripture. Sometimes we just need to pray because it's confusing and, and God needs to show us what a, a passage means. So as I, as I read this passage, though, some of the questions that, that come to my mind right off the bat, first is what do their names mean? You know, names in the Bible have meaning. They usually have meaning. Names are often tied to a person's origin or their destiny. So what do, what do their names mean? Cain. What, is, what does the name Cain mean? And the scripture kind of gives us an answer. It says, uh, you know, Adam, or, uh, Eve conceived and she bore Cain. And, and she said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So that name Cain, it's kind of a weird name, but it literally means like I have gotten. It means to, to possess something, to Take possession of something. And so that's where Cain's name from. Cain, Cain's name came from. Um, Abel. What does the name Abel mean? So the, the name Abel, it comes from the Hebrew word Havel, which means breath or, or vapor, or it can even be used um, for, for the word vanity. And this name, it kind of communicates the, the brevity of life. And what we'll find out is Abel's name is kind of like a foreshadowing of this story, the rest of the story that we're going to read. But that word, Havel, I'll, I'll read a, a scripture that that word is used in. Uh, Psalm 39.5, it says, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. That word breath is Havel. And that's where Abel's name comes from. Next question, what, what's the significance of their jobs? That's kind of the next detail that we get. We see that Cain's a farmer, Abel is a shepherd. So what, is, what does that mean? Why, why do we get that detail? Little research showed me, so in this, in this time, back in the day, uh, being a farmer, that's a much more honorable profession than being a shepherd, right? Shepherds were kind of second class um, that's not as, as honorable of a job. But it, it kind of makes sense that Cain was a farmer because who was his dad? It was Adam, and Adam was a farmer. Adam was a, a man who um, kept the ground, you know, and, and worked the ground. And so it seems likely that the, the father, Adam, passed his profession down to his firstborn son, 
Cain. So Cain, he had, the, he had a higher status as the firstborn, and he had a more desirable, honorable profession. Next question, why did God like Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? And this is kind of really getting into the plot of the story. <clears throat> I'd be upset, you know, if I was Cain, and God doesn't have any regard for me and my offering, but my brother's offering, he's like, yeah, I like that. You know, I read that, and I'm like, I wonder, I wonder why. Like, I, <clears throat> and I don't have, like, a, a super clear answer, but here's, here's what I, oh, hey, hey, pup. Um, here's some uh, stuff I found in, in a commentary. So it says, concerning the offering from the fruit of the ground, the Hebrew word order here might hint that Cain brought whatever was close at hand, while Abel brought the best of what he had. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. This, this offering seems to demonstrate great care and attention to his relationship with God. You'll actually see later in Scripture what the offering that Abel brought, the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions, that's exactly um, the sacrifice that God requires of the priests in, when he institutes the sacrificial system in Exodus 13 and Numbers 18. That's interesting. So Abel brought the best of what he had, and by offering the firstborn and best, he, he makes a greater sacrifice, and this reflects a really righteous attitude and heart in Abel. And you know, the, the text doesn't really say any of that, though. Like, it doesn't say that, that Cain's offering sucked and Abel's offering was awesome. Like, we're just kind of guessing. And, you know, we can read between the lines and make guesses uh, about why God had regard for Abel's offering and not Cain's. But, but one thing we know for sure is that, that in Scripture, the, the offering itself, it, it does matter, but what matters way more than that is the heart and the, the motive and the character and the relationship with God of the person doing the offering. That matters way more than the offering itself. God, you know, God's not legalistic. It's not like God's like, man, that's a nice cut of meat, Abel, but Cain, like, these berries are moldy, so I'm, I'm sending them back because I want fresh berries. No, like, that's... God doesn't need the berries, and he doesn't need the sheep. Like, he doesn't need anything. What he wants is the, the heart and the affection of Cain and Abel. And the, the fact that he rejected Cain's offering shows that he probably didn't have that from Cain. Mark 12, Jesus, he, he talks about someone who gave an offering, and I think this is insightful. Jesus, it says, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who are contributing to the offering box. For they contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had to live on. Why was Jesus so impressed with the penny that the widow gave? He's impressed because her offering showed that she trusted God, even in the midst of her lack. God didn't need her penny. And like I said, he doesn't need Cain's produce or Abel's sheep. He has everything. God has everything. What he wants is our heart, though. And oftentimes, the, the, the quality of the, the sacrifice a person would bring is a reflection of their heart towards God. Like, do I think he's worthy of the first and best of what I have? Or do I just want to, you know, give him the scraps of my time? You know, is he worthy of, you know, my hour right when I wake up, first thing that I do? Or am I just going to, like, give him five minutes once a week? What's he worthy of? And the, the quality of what people give him kind of shows how they esteem him. And I think that's true with, with Cain and Abel. 
It's not necessarily that Cain's offering was bad. It's, I think, that Cain's heart was bad. His attitude towards God was bad, and we'll see that later as I continue reading. Cain had some issues, some serious issues that had gone unchecked. And his offering being rejected, it it caused those issues that were already there to just come out. And I think this is true in our life, too. Like, when, when we're put into a difficult situation, when something happens that we really do not want to happen, oftentimes who we really are comes out in those moments. You know, when everything's fine, everything's going well in life, no issues, circumstances are great, you got money in the bank, you got food on the table, everything's fine, relationships are good, you're good. It's easy to just be good when things are good. But when life starts to squeeze you, when something goes wrong, when you fail, when you make a mistake, who you really are starts to come out. When you squeeze an orange, what comes out? Orange juice, right? Because it's an orange. When you squeeze a a Christian, what comes out? I want to have a a relationship with Jesus that that looks like, like when I'm squeezed by life, when when I mess up, what comes out is Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, you know, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But what, what came out of Cain when he was in a difficult situation, when he was squeezed, when his offering wasn't accepted? What came out of him? The text, it says he was very angry. It says his face fell. This implies sadness and shame, like he, he looked down. That kind of, kind of makes me think of Adam and Eve hiding in the garden from God. Like shame, fear, hiding. And it doesn't explicitly say this right here, but I think what came out of Cain was also jealousy. We'll see that as we keep reading. So let's, let's keep reading. Uh, picking up in verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Man, there is some good stuff here. So Cain's offering doesn't get accepted by God. God, what what does God do? He shows up. Like a good father, God sees Cain and he speaks to Cain. Which this is really cool. Cain has just offered God a sacrifice that that God, God has no regard for it. But God, he still shows up. And he sees Cain and he speaks to him. It's because he's a good father. This is, this is what God is like. And I, I think some of us need to hear that. You know, when you fail, God doesn't ignore you. He doesn't ignore you when you mess up. He pursues you when you mess up. He pursues you when you fail. Like he's a God who sees us in the middle of our failure or our sin or our, our mistakes. And he, he, he sees us and he speaks to us. He shows up. That's what he did. He, he showed up in the middle of Cain's adult temper tantrum angry, pouty, face down, jealous, and he, he speaks to him. And, and what does he say? He says, Cain, if you do well. When I read that, I, I believe this is, this is God like calling Cain to repentance, if you do well. God understood that Cain was not doing well. Cain was not doing well. God wasn't pleased with the sacrifice. He, he, he is inviting Cain here to adjust his course. He sees what's in Cain's heart. He sees the path that Cain is heading down. And, and God does not want him to, you know, go and kill his brother. That's what's going to happen here soon. He doesn't want him to hurt other people. He doesn't want to hurt himself. So God shows up and he gives him this opportunity for repentance. Cain, if you do well. 
And that, that repentance, so that word repentance, the, the Greek word for repent in the New Testament, it's metanoia, and all it means is to change how you think. Repentance is changed thinking that results in a new course of action. And I believe God shows up here to Cain, and he's offering him a new course of action. And I, I think he does that with us. In the middle of our sin, he shows up, and he offers us a new course of action, new thinking that results in a new, a new way of living. And so he, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, and then he gives him this warning. And the warning is so profound. It is so profound. He, he tells him three things. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. And you must rule over it. It's crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. And you must rule over it. I want to talk about these three things. So the first one, sin is crouching at the door. Cain, if you do not do well, watch out because sin is crouching at the door. It's so interesting to me that God personifies sin, right? Sin is, sin doesn't crouch. What does that, what does that mean? Like sin isn't a person. Sin is a thing that we do. It means to miss the mark. But God personifies it to Cain. He says sin is crouching at the door. This, this, uh, this reminds me actually of what we just read one chapter before. In Genesis 3, it says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Or, or 1 Peter 5, 8, Grant quoted this a few minutes ago. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your devil, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right? The devil is crafty. He prowls. Sin is crouching at the door. Like, it's what does that mean? Like, sin crouching at the door, that, that I believe, shows like it's ready to come in. It's ready to come into your life. It's always there. It's always an option. And it's ready to, it's ready to pounce on you. <laughs> it's ready to infiltrate your life. And the thing with sin is it, it always presents itself as something desirable to us. And the, I'm going to try to make this make sense. Like, the, the fleshly part of us loves that. You know, we, part of us loves sin actually. <laughs> Even just the, I, I think of Cain and his situation and like the anger that he feels. No one wants to be angry. Anger sucks. But like when someone wrongs you and you feel justified in your anger, part of you really like wants to hold on to that feeling of anger, right? You know what I mean? Or like if life is super hard and you're really anxious, like this, this part of you deep down, like it, it wants to hold on to that anxiety, does it make sense? Do you guys know what I mean or feel that at all? Like part of us actually wants these things that are so obviously bad for us and, and damaging and hurtful to us. That, that sick, you know, sinful, fleshly part of us, it, it, wants, it wants sin. And the thing is, sin is always there. It's crouching at the door. It's always an option. And usually it's the easy option. <laughs> Usually it's the natural option. We, we gravitate naturally towards sin, all, every one of us. And then God gives this other insight. He says, its desire is contrary to you. Once again, personifying sin. God is, is telling Cain that sin has a desire. And sin's desire is contrary to you. Sin's ultimate desire for your life is bad. 
It's, it's separation from God. It's death. It's eternity in hell. That's the desire of sin for our life. And that's what sin gets us, you know? The devil, he hates us. He wants to kill us. He wants to separate us from God. And, and you know, he tempts us with things all the time. Life tempts us with things all of the time. And, and they don't always, like, feel that bad, though, in the moment, you know? That, that desire to, to gossip and, you know, talk bad about someone behind their back that you're upset with or to, to tell a little lie or to watch a little porn or get a little drunk or to touch your boyfriend or your girlfriend somewhere you know you're not supposed to. Like, in the moment, those things don't feel, like, that bad or destructive. They don't feel that bad. It might even feel like those things will give us something that we need. But like, so imagine you're, um, imagine you're, I have a picture. Imagine you're like standing by a light post, okay? And you take one step away from that light post. It, it doesn't, you know, you're still in the light. It's a dark night. The light's shining, you know, one step away from that light post. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're that far away. You know, you're still experiencing the, the effects of light in your life. It's not, doesn't feel much darker than it did one step before. You know, and then you take another one and another one and another one. And, you know, you look back and you're still kind of close to the light. Then you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. And, and all of a sudden, you, you find yourself in this place where you have, you have separated yourself very far from the source of light in your life. And sin, that's the, the desire of sin is contrary to us. This is like what sin does. It convinces us that that one step away from the light, away from Jesus, into that thing you know you're not supposed to do, it's not going to be that bad. It's fine. Just one time is not that bad. It's such a lie. <laughs> it's such a lie. Sin is going to take whatever room it can get in our life. And it's going to do everything it can to get us 50 steps down that path. And before we know it, we're in this place that we never wanted to be in. I, I feel like I see this all the time with college students. You know, I, I'll meet someone, and, you know, they come in as a freshman, and they're like, I want to follow Jesus. I'm all in. And then, like, you know, ah, if I just go do that thing one time, it's not going to, it's going to be okay. God's going to forgive me. I need to go and experience. We, we entertain these lies in our mind. Just one time, it's going to be fine. And then all of a sudden, one time turns into a, you know, a second, a third, and a fourth, and a fifth time. And, and all of a sudden, like, the person winds up in this place that they never wanted to be in or never thought that they would be in. Sin is so crafty, and it's crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you. Sin wants to kill you. It wants to separate you from your source of life, God. And, and pet sin that we, you know, we know that part of our life is there, and it's not great, but it's not that bad. So I'm just going to let it exist in my life. Man, pet sin will grow into a monster, and it will kill you. It will kill you. We, we, have, we have got to catch the foxes in our life, or else they will do some serious damage to us. I, I, I do not, I, I don't want to be a person. I even think God probably gave me that dream because there are areas of my life where I've grown tolerant of sin and complacent. And I do not want that. I, I don't want us to be a church that's content with 
tolerating things in our life that are sinful. Man, I, I want us to be a people that run hard after righteousness and, and do everything that we can to look as much like Jesus as we can. So don't, don't take that one, don't believe that lie that, that, you know, one step down that bad path isn't going to put you too far away from the light. It's not true. Sin's desire is contrary to you. And then he tells Cain this, this third part. He says, Cain, you must rule over it. You must rule over it. Sin's desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. It's interesting. God doesn't say sin's crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. So if you ask me, I'll just take it away. I'll take away all your temptations. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, you, Cain, you must rule over it. I, you know, I had a, a long, ugly history with sexual sin. I was addicted to porn for a really long time. And even after I got saved as a freshman in college, I still wrestled with that for a couple years. And I'm going to continue using that as an example, just sexual sin and porn, because that's what I have history with. If you haven't struggled with that, great. Don't. Please don't. But um, I'm still speaking to you, though. But, like, I, I struggled with that for such a long time in my life. And even year, two years after I got saved, like, I still wrestled with that sin. And I would, I would pray this all the time. I'd be like, God, take this away from me. Take, take this sin away from me. And looking back now, that was a really dumb prayer. <laughs> it was a dumb prayer. And I'm not going to tell you to stop. Like, pr pray whatever you want. You know, God loves to hear anything that we have to say to him. David prayed some crazy things to God. Like, pr if that's a prayer you pray, I'm not going to tell you. Stop praying that prayer. You can pray it if you want. But I realized that's a dumb, that's, I don't like that prayer anymore. What am I asking? Am I asking, like, God, take away my free will? <laughs> Force me to never do this again? No, like, he did what he did on the cross for me. The ball's in my court. I, I must rule over this sin. Cain, like God speaks to Cain, Cain, you must rule over this sin. You know, Jesus, just for us in our situation, like he already died on the cross for us. He was, he was already pierced for our transgression. I think of, uh, you know, John the Baptist. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's already done that. That's the reality. Like, he did that on the cross. It's just up to us, you know? The, the ball's in our court. Are you going to rule over your sin, or will your sin rule over you? 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13, it says, Therefore, if anyone, anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will provide you with the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It doesn't say God's going to take away your temptation. It says he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. And he's going to give you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We must rule over our sin. And the amazing thing is that in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually can. You can. You, you are not a slave to sin anymore. If you believe in Jesus and you're trying to follow him, you are not a slave to your sin. Romans 6. I wanted to read the whole chapter, but I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to. I'll pick up in verse 11. This is, this is Paul speaking to the church in Rome, speaking to us today. So you also, you must it uses that word again. You must, you, you must rule over it. Here, Paul says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And in the, the whole first ten verses before that are, are talking about how in baptism, you know, baptism is a picture of us being joined together with the death of Jesus. And, and, and that's, that's us dying to our sin and then being raised to new life. And it says, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you, Christian, full of the Holy Spirit, you have what it takes to rule over your sin. That's, that's part of what Jesus died for and then rose for. So that you could rule over your sin. And so how, how do we do that? How do we... As Christians, how do we rule over our sin? I think I have three things. I think step one, understand that in Christ we can. That's what I've already talked about. But believe that you can. If you, if you believe this is always going to be a thing that I struggle with, I promise you, you will always struggle with it. If you believe that you're a slave to your sin, you're a slave to your sin. If you believe in your heart, man, like, I am just always going to be an anxious, depressed person. You will always be an anxious, depressed person. <laughs> What we believe, it, it shapes how we live, right? And so, man, step one, like if you have a porn addiction and you don't think you're ever going to get free from it, you're not ever going to get free, free from it. You just won't because you believe that you won't, right? You have to understand that in Christ you can. Romans 8, it says we're more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Jesus did everything that he needed to do so that you could conquer your sin and rule over it. You have what it takes in Christ to rule over your sin. That's step one. Step two, live in the light. Con confess your sin to people. Confess your sin to God. We'll, we'll see that Cain had opportunities to do this, and he didn't. He failed. Step two, if you want to live in freedom, right, if you want to rule over your sin, live in the light. 1 John 1, it, it says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And like, God is light, you know, and if we're walking in the darkness, <laughs> then we're actually lying, James 5 is actually a command. It says, confess your sin one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. It's a command. Great, confess your sin to God for sure. You need to do that. But we're commanded in James 5, confess your sin one to another. There is something so powerful about bringing another human being into your struggle. It just, it just destroys shame. Cain's response, his face fell, he was sad. Like, that's our response when we fail. That's our, that is our reaction to the ugly parts of our life. It's shame. But when you, when you find a brother or sister in Christ that you trust, and you're like, hey, I got, I got to talk to you about this. I've got this thing I'm struggling with. Man, that ju it just pulls the rug out from under shame in your life. And so I think that, man, I think living in the light and confessing your sin is essential to ruling over sin. You have to. And then the, the third thing, 
just take simple steps in the right direction. <laughs> take simple steps in the right direction. You know, practice righteousness. Don't, don't take steps away from the light. Take steps towards the light. Practice spiritual disciplines. And if, if like, there's really, really practical ways to combat a sin struggle in your life, just do them. Like, if you're, if you're struggling with, with sexual sin, following that example, just take Safari off your iPhone, you know? That's easy. It's easy. It's easy to do that. Take simple steps in the right direction. And I'd even encourage you, like, if, if as I'm preaching, there's things on your mind, you're like, dang, man, he's talking to this part of my life. Pray and ask God, like, God, what, what simple steps do you want me to take to, to move towards freedom from this sin? So, one, understand that in Christ, you can rule over your sin. Two, live in the light. Three, take steps in the right direction. Unfortunately, Cain did not do this. He didn't do any of these things. So let's, let's read on. Genesis 4, picking up in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield to you in its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So a few quick takeaways, just to, to tie this all together. Cain, the, he didn't deal with the foxes. They dealt with him, right? Cain makes a... a Serious, serious is an understatement. Like, Cain fails badly here. And it's even interesting. Like, I just, I notice the, the progression when I just follow Cain through this story. You know, the story starts with him um, offering a sacrifice that God doesn't accept. And then he gets angry and, and sad. And then God shows up and he gives him some advice. You know, he calls him higher. Cain ignores the advice. And then he, it says he speaks to his brother. Like, I, I, the, way, the, the way that this reads to me, it seems like Cain was premeditated. Like, he, he understood what he was going to do. He speaks to his brother. He's, man, he's manipulating his brother. He takes him out into the field, and he murders him. And there's just this progression, and that just goes to show, right? Sin's crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Sin's will for our life is death. It doesn't just, it doesn't, it's not content either. Sin has this massive appetite, and it just always wants more of us and more of us and more of us. And that's what happens with Cain. It's just like step after step after step in this story. It just gets worse and worse and worse, and it ends with him murdering his brother. I, when I read this, like, I just, I, I think, man, Cain's sin here, it's egregious. Like, it's awful. But, but when I think about it, I'm like, man, so is mine. I've never killed anybody, but my sin is, is egregious. Like, our sin is, is awful. <laughs> James 2, 10, it says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. 
For he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. The reality is every single one of us has transgressed the law. Every single one of us is guilty. And, and every single one of us, our sin is egregious in the sight of God. In, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, he's, he's giving the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, he says, if, if any of you look, look at another person with lust, you've committed adultery with that person in your heart. Just our, our simple lust. Every person in this room is probably guilty of that. We're adulterers. That's what the Bible says. Or, or anger. Right after, Jesus he connects anger with murder. It's like, if, if you are, are angry with another person, you're guilty. Our sin, it's, it's egregious. And man, I, I hope, like, like I said in the beginning, I really, I hope that... I hope that today, you know, as I'm talking, the Holy Spirit just highlights sin in our life. I, 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 we, are, we get so complacent and tolerant of pet sin. I used that language earlier. I use it again. And I, I just, I don't want that. I want us to, to understand how, the way God sees our sin. It's awful. And I'll get, I'll get more into that in a second. But, but next thing that I see in this last part. Even though our sin is egregious, there's still an, an opportunity for repentance. There's always an opportunity for repentance. As long as you have breath in your lungs, there is an opportunity for repentance. And I, I see that in the way that God approaches Cain. Like, he doesn't just approach him with an accusation. He approaches Cain. He asks him a question. Where's your brother? This is just like the way he approaches Adam and Eve in the garden with a question. I, I believe he's giving Cain an opportunity to to come clean. Is there still going to be consequences for his actions? Of course. But what if Cain, like, imagine, I, I don't know what the outcome would be here if Cain humbles himself, and he's like, oh my God, I, I did something terrible. I didn't listen to you, God, and I murdered my brother. There'd still be a consequence to his sin, but the story might end a little bit differently. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what would happen. But I just, I see that even in, in uh, man, the worst failure that a person can make, God, God still offers us this opportunity to repent, to come clean about, about what we've done. But the next thing that I see, Cain, and I think we do the same thing, instead of, instead of repenting, what does Cain do? He just keeps lying and hiding. He lies and he hides. He says, I don't know. I don't know where my brother's at. Who am I? My brother's keeper. And he, and he hides. And you even, even look, like, God, so God ascribes this punishment to Cain, you know, the, the, the the ground's not going to give you what it once did, and you're going to be a fugitive and a wonder. And then what does Cain follow up with? He says, from your face I shall be hidden. That's so interesting to me because God never, that's never part of the, the punishment. God never says that. He just says, the ground's not going to give you what it once did, and you're going to be a fugitive and a wonder. And Cain is like, ah, oh, I'm going to be hidden from your face forever. It's like, he never, he never said that. But I think that that shows the, the tendency in the Cain and the tendency in us. When we fail, we want to hide. Earlier, I, I said God doesn't ignore you when you fail. But, but do you ignore God when you fail? <laughs> Man, sometimes it, it, the, the hardest moments to, to draw near to God are the moments right after we've done something stupid. <laughs> or we, we realize that we're in sin. I just, I remember, back, back to my struggle with sexual sin, I can remember like f relapsing. And then just, just feeling so broken and, and heavy and like, too dirty and too messed up to, to draw near to God. And I wouldn't. And there'd be time, you know, I'd go a day or two days or three days just 
totally like on that bad path away from the light because I'm too ashamed to turn back to him. And that is the last thing that God wants, guys. Like the, the, the place that we need to be in the most after we fail is God's presence. God sees us and speaks to us. He comes after us when we mess up. And I promise you, in your, in your sin, in the, the sin in your life, God is, is pursuing you in the midst of that. He's, he loves you, and he wants to help you. And then the last thing I see is, is just that, that our Saint Cain, his sin has consequences, but God still has mercy. And it's true for us guys. Our sin has consequences, but God has mercy. And the, the, the truest, most awesome display of God's mercy that we will ever see is the cross. It's Jesus. You know, I, a minute ago, I talked about how what we've done is egregious. Like our, our sin, the mistakes that we've made, the crap that we've, we are all guilty of, the, the hidden thing that you have in that, that dark, closed closet of your mind that you don't think you're ever going to tell anyone about. God knows everything. He knows it all. He sees, he sees everything. And, and here, I want to I read this for you. It's Psalm 75, 8. I've, I've preached on this before. It's intense. It says, in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The scripture is saying that there's this cup in God's hand, and that cup represents the wrath of God. The wrath of God on the sin of the world, on our sin. God's wrath is in this cup with foaming wine, and it's well mixed. And it says he pours out from it on all the wicked of the earth, and they'll drain it down to the dregs. So, so imagine this cup in God's hand. His anger for every wicked thing that's ever been done on planet earth is in that cup. All of, all of the, the hatred God feels towards, towards rape and towards murder and towards human trafficking and towards the porn industry and towards your gossip issue and, and our pride and our our anger issues, like all of that, the, the, the wrath of God for the sin of the entire world is in this cup. Do you remember anywhere else in Scripture that talks about a cup? Jesus in the garden. Jesus in the garden, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is talking about this. This is what Psalm 75, 8 is what Jesus is talking about when he prays that prayer. Jesus understood in the Garden of Gethsemane, I am going to receive the full wrath of God for the sins of everyone else, and he's the only one that didn't. He is the only one that was innocent. And he understood, I'm, I am about to, the worst part of the crucifixion was not nails in Jesus' hand. I, I don't I don't think that really was bad at all. I don't think it was the whip on his back. I don't, I don't think it was the crown of thorns on his head. By far the worst part of the, the crucifixion was Jesus taking on the wrath of God, being punished for everyone for all of time on him in that moment. That was the worst part. That was by far the worst part of the crucifixion. He drank that cup of God's wrath fully. He, he drained it down to the dregs. Man, he, he did that for you. God's just. Like, God has to punish sin, you know? And so, I mean, it's, it, our sin has consequences, but God has mercy. And what I just explained is the mercy of God for you 
He did that for you. He, he is so worthy. He is so worthy of our life. Man, he is so worthy of us running as far away from sin as we can because our sin's what put him there in the first place. I don't want us to, to tolerate it. I don't, I don't want us to let the foxes live in our yard. I don't want, man, like, sin's desire is contrary to us, and it, it will destroy us. Thank God Jesus was destroyed for us so that we wouldn't have to receive the wrath of God on ourselves. And the, the beautiful thing about all this is I, I think back to the beginning of the story. In the same way that, that Abel gave God an offering that he accepted, so can you. You can too. And it's not a lamb. It's not some produce. It's your life. You know, Jesus, he, he, he offered himself as a sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, he was crushed for us. He sacrificed his life for us. The awesome thing is we can now offer our life as a sacrifice to him. Romans 12.1 commands us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You can do that. You, you have a sacrifice that you can give to God that he will accept, and it's your life. And he is so worthy of that. He drank that cup of God's wrath for us because he loves us. And so, man, if, if you're here today and you, you haven't done that, you haven't received Jesus into your life, I, I plead with you, do that. Like, the alternative is you're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God one day, and you're going to have to answer for all the good and all the bad that you did in this life. And I promise, every one of you has failed. So have I. Right? The wages of our sin is death. But man, he was crushed for you. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for you. And, and like all we have to do is say yes to him. And so if you haven't done that, I, I want to I challenge you to do that. Worship team, you can, you can come back up. And if you have, if you have done that, if, you, if your life is an offering to God and you, you believe in him and you're trying to follow him, don't, don't tolerate the foxes. <laughs> Kill them. Trap them. Do whatever it takes, right? If it means you need to have a conversation with a friend or a mentor, do it. If it needs, means you need to box a fire on your phone, do it. If it means you need to get away with Jesus and just be honest with him about some things that you've been tolerating in your life, do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. Jesus, I, I just thank you for what you have done for us. We are like, we, we, we don't deserve it. Who are we? We're a vapor. We're a mist. We're, we're nothing. Like, you don't, you really, you do not owe us anything. We deserve that, that cup of God's wrath. But you, you, you had other plans. And you were, you were crushed on our behalf. You're, you're pierced for our transgressions. You, you gave up everything. You gave up your life so that we wouldn't have to be slaves of sin. God, God I, I just pray for freedom. Your, your will for our life is freedom. 
And I, I, I know that some of us in this room are living like slaves still. I know that some of us in this room are, are tolerant of the sin in our life. And we just ignore it. We brush it off. We act like it's not a big deal. We hide it. We lie to ourselves about it. And I just, God, we just say no more. No. We don't want to tolerate sin. We want to, we want to be righteous. In 2 Corinthians, it, it says that you became our sin so that we could become your righteousness. Jesus, we want to, we want to be people who are righteous. So I just, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would come and you would give us this morning a revelation of the freedom that you paid for on the cross. Father, I, I pray that, that addictions would be over after today. God, I, I pray that the things that enslave us, that we would recognize that they're actually powerless. The blood of Jesus makes them powerless. And Father, I pray that you would help us to, to walk in freedom. Help us to not take any more steps on that path away from you. Help us to live in the light. In Jesus' name, amen.